we praise you because you are the risen King. You came to this earth, you stepped off your heavenly throne in such a humble manner. Then you came and then you taught, but you're teaching, even though it's still so helpful for us today, it's not the main thing, because you came to die and then you were resurrected. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is exalted over all things. And Lord, as we open the scripture right now, as we consider what you've done down through history, I pray that in this time together that we will come to greater understanding and greater confidence of the fact that you were resurrected. And then that we will be moved in our spirits and our hearts to then apply that to our lives and surrender more and more wholeheartedly to you so that you will be transforming us inside out. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Now, next Sunday is Easter, which is set aside to help us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we have to understand that the resurrection is absolutely central to Christianity. It's not like the resurrection is just the final chapter of the book that, you know, you can kind of take it and leave it or whatever. But no, the resurrection is central. I mean, we do talk a lot here, you know, around Christmas time about Jesus' birth. And we talk a lot about Jesus' teaching, and we, we talk a whole lot throughout the year about Jesus' death. But without the resurrection, Jesus' death, and really the rest of it up to that point, really doesn't matter all that much. I want you to picture it for a minute, kind of like writing a check. When you write a check, you need to have sufficient funds in your checking account or else the check is going to bounce. We probably all recognize that reality. You want the check to clear Now, Jesus' death on the cross was kind of like writing a huge check in payment for sin. And even though they didn't have personal checks back then like we have today, I think this general concept is what was in Jesus' mind as he was there on the cross. Because right before Jesus died, his final word that he said was to tell us die. To tell us die was a financial term that meant paid in full. It meant that there was a debt that had to be paid, and it's been paid fully. To tell us die. That was Jesus' final word on the cross, paid in full. Now we know, again, when you write a check, you need to have sufficient funds in the account for it to clear. For instance, in my checking account, if I were to write a check for $100, it would clear because I have that much money in my account. But if I write a check for $100,000, it's going to bounce. I don't have that much in my checking account. Now, Jesus, in his death on the cross, he was essentially writing a huge check in payment for the sins of the world. That was what happened when he died. And his resurrection demonstrates that God accepted that payment, that the check cleared, that that, that sin has been atoned for, that death has been defeated. That's what Jesus' resurrection showed, that the check has cleared. And that can give us such confidence and such joy in this life and for eternity. Now we are in a series right now called Big Butts Easter Edition, which is all about addressing objections that people have about Jesus' death and resurrection. The first week we looked at the objection that says, but the idea of a crucified Savior is foolish. Back in the first century, this was a huge objection that people had because the idea of a crucified Savior just made no sense at all. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the question, but isn't the story about Jesus just a myth? 
Isn't that just a myth? No, you're right. It's not a myth. But we, we had to look at that because a lot of people think it is. And then last week, Greg Moslick did a wonderful job explaining um, just how to, how to understand the objection. But maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he just passed out and then in the tomb he was revived. But no, that's, that's not how it worked because the Roman centurions who oversaw crucifixion, they were professional killers. And no one ever escaped the crucifixion alive. Jesus died. And so today we come to the next objection which says, yes, Jesus died, but maybe Jesus' disciples just made up the resurrection. Maybe the resurrection is basically just a big fat lie. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Now, with next Sunday being Easter, it's a great time to invite family and friends to come to church. And the subject we'll be looking at next week is this. But if Jesus' death and resurrection are true, it changes everything. So we will be celebrating the transforming work that Jesus wants to do in our lives next week. Uh, but today... We're going to be focusing on, on examining some of the objections and looking at some of the objective criteria that help us to trust that Jesus truly was resurrected. So we're going to start by looking at one of the resurrection accounts in the Bible that's found in Matthew chapter 28. So I invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Matthew writes, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galilee there, and there they will see me. And so this is one of the accounts in Scripture about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if skeptics were to read this, they'd probably question whether this is really true. They might say, you know what, yeah, it's written here in the Bible, but, but can we really trust this? Isn't it quite possible the disciples just made up the story about Jesus' resurrection? Well, that's what we're looking at today. And the reality is we can't travel back in a time machine. That would be kind of cool to go back and actually see the original events as they unfold to verify what happened. Now, we don't have a time machine, but there are many, many clues that come down to us through history to help give us reasons to trust that Jesus truly was resurrected. And today we're going to look at a number of those clues from three main angles. And the first angle of clue that we need to look at is the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty. I mean, just, you know, just in the days following Jesus' crucifixion and burial, the disciples were out there proclaiming, you know, 
Jesus, he's risen. He's been resurrected. I mean, that's a pretty outstanding, amazing claim. It's kind of hard to believe in one angle. But there were a lot of people back then who didn't really like Christians. And they didn't care that much for Jesus, especially the idea of, of Jesus being resurrected. And so there's a simple way, if they want to put a stop to the disciples' teaching about the resurrection, there's a simple way to do it. Just go to the tomb and get Jesus' dead body and bring it out and show it to everyone. I mean, I think for a minute, um, just with me, my, my, one of my grandmothers passed away about seven months ago. Imagine I went around saying, hey, my grandma raised from the dead. She's no longer in the grave anymore. I mean, how would you react if I said that? I mean, at first you'd probably think, oh, Brandon's just joking. If I continue to insist that my grandma was resurrected, you now some people might think, oh, he's not quite there mentally. He's kind of crazy. You might question, should he really be my pastor if he's saying that his grandma raised from the dead? Now imagine that I continued to, to just proclaim my grandma has raised from the dead and it started to get some notoriety in the news. Odds are good at some point someone is going to go to the cemetery where she was buried they may even dig up her casket, and when they dig it up, they're going to find, you know what, her body's still in the grave. No matter what Brandon's there proclaiming, she has not been raised from the dead. Because all you have to do is go to the grave and find the body and show, yep, she's still here. And there are enough opponents of, of Christianity back 2,000 years ago, just in the days and weeks and months and years after Jesus was crucified, that if Jesus' body was in the tomb someone would have found it and would have brought it out in public and demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is still dead. Yet the interesting thing was that no one did. Opponents never found Jesus' body. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Even most, most um, skeptical scholars will agree that, that, you know what, the tomb was empty. Even skeptics. But if, if a person doesn't want to believe that Jesus was resurrected, you have to come up with an alternative theory for what happened to Jesus' body. And one of the most common theories is that, no, Jesus wasn't resurrected, but instead the disciples stole Jesus' body and made up this whole story about the resurrection. In fact, we see that right here in Matthew 28. Look back with me, picking up in verse 11. It says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And, and so this is a bribe that the Jewish leaders are giving to the guards who are guarding the tomb to try to just come up with an alternative story. And then the Jewish leaders say in verse 14, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, I want you to notice here what the Jewish leaders did not say. They did not say, hey, look, the body's still in the grave. He hasn't risen. No, no, they didn't say that. They also didn't say, well, I think everyone's just forgotten where Jesus was buried. We, we just have the wrong tomb. 
No, they didn't say that either. Instead, they said, you know what? The disciples must have stolen the body because they knew that the tomb was empty and they had to come up with a story. Now, one of the interesting things in this whole, whole uh, fabricated story is to recognize that the tomb was guarded uh, when Jesus' body disappeared. The tomb was under guard. The Jewish leaders were so afraid some funny business was going to take place that they went to Pontius Pilate, the governor of that area, and requested that there be a guard placed at the tomb in the days following Jesus' crucifixion. Now, scholars debate what type of guard this was. Was it that Pontius Pilate sent Roman soldiers to guard the tomb? Or was it that Pilate gave permission for the Jews to take some of the, the police force that guarded the temple and have them stationed at the tomb? Scholars debate that, but regardless, it begs the question of, okay, if someone wants to say that the disciples stole the body, how they do that when it was guarded? I mean, because you think on one hand, if it was Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, that's kind of like trying to take on U.S. Marines. On the other hand, if it was a police force from the temple, um, that would be kind of like taking on the Port Washington police force. Neither one is really a recipe for success. And you think about how dejected the, the disciples were following Jesus' crucifixion. Would they have even considered trying to battle the guards for Jesus' body to make up this elaborate lie? It doesn't really make sense that they would try to do that. And some people say, well, the soldiers were probably just sleeping. That's not a possibility when you understand how guards and how soldiers um, how it worked back then. And so we have this issue where the body disappeared from the tomb while it was under armed guard. And if you want to say that Jesus, something happened besides Jesus' resurrection, you have to come up with a theory of how that worked. Now the Bible gives an explanation of how this worked, that Jesus was resurrected. Then an angel came down um, as Jesus was resurrected and rolled the stone away from the tomb. And it says in verse 4 of Matthew 28 that the guards were so afraid of the angel that they shook and became like dead men. Now, it doesn't mean they actually died, but they were so scared they just kind of froze. They were terrified. And this is a common reaction throughout the Bible whenever someone comes face to face with an angel. And so we see the fact that the tomb was empty. And we have to have a way to explain the empty tomb. Either Jesus was resurrected or something else happened. Now the empty tomb does not prove that Jesus was resurrected. But it is strong evidence that points in that direction. Now let's look now at the evidence from another angle. Looking at this idea of Jesus being resurrected. And that's the fact that Jesus' disciples were transformed in a very short period of time after he was crucified. Remember that after Jesus was crucified, the disciples were so scared, they were confused, they were hopeless. I mean, remember, I mean, the apostle Peter. When Jesus was on trial, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. And then in the time when Jesus was being crucified, all the disciples, except for John, fled. And then after Jesus was crucified, all of the disciples locked themselves in a room trying to hide from Jews because they were so scared of what was going to happen. I mean, it was like their world just came crashing down. They were in utter despair. But then, 
suddenly there was a transformation that took place. And suddenly they displayed such courage and joy as they proclaimed that Jesus was the risen Messiah. I mean, it was a transformation that took place incredibly quickly in a matter of 48 hours, less than that, after the crucifixion. And apart from, the, apart from Jesus being resurrected and appearing to the disciples, it's, it's hard to figure out psychologically how the disciples could have made such a radical emotional shift so quickly. I mean, think about times where you've lost a loved one. Whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or, or a close friend, maybe even a spouse. In those times where you're grieving the loss of a loved one, is there any way possible for you to go from that grieving process to less than 48 hours later to a place of, of pure, uninhibited joy? Is that possible at all? I don't see how it is. I've never seen anyone be able to make that type of radical transformation. Yet that's what the disciples experienced. They were in such despair, so hopeless. So, I mean, up to that point in their life, I mean, you look at their three years with Jesus in his ministry. They were so frequently confused and so frequently doubting. So frequently even fighting with one another. And now all of a sudden, they come out with this new level of confidence and joy and unity in, in proclaiming that Jesus has been resurrected. That they have seen Jesus with their own eyes. I don't know of any explanation for that transformation apart from them seeing Jesus with their own eyes. That's what they attributed the transformation to. And, and apart from actually that being true of seeing the resurrected Jesus, it's hard to account for the huge transformation and confidence and joy that the disciples experienced. And on top of this, we, we see that, that they not only proclaimed that Jesus was resurrected, but they suffered and they died for their belief in the resurrection. They carried this through, through, through suffering, through persecution, all the way to the point of death. I mean, you think about the Apostle Peter. When Jesus was on trial, Peter three different times denied that he even knew Jesus. I mean, he completely deserted Jesus who he'd followed for three years. There would be such shame there. But then, Peter comes out, and he's proclaiming that Jesus has risen. And he's proclaiming this to anyone and everyone, regardless of the, of the threats to his safety. I mean, he underwent significant persecution. He was imprisoned for proclaiming that Jesus had been resurrected. And then years later, he was crucified because... He would not stop proclaiming that Jesus was resurrected. What was his reasoning uh, for such confidence? Why didn't he back off these claims in the face of persecution? Because he truly believed that Jesus was resurrected and that he had seen Jesus with his own eyes. You look at, look at uh, Thomas, another one of Jesus' disciples. He is known as Doubting Thomas. I mean, it's unfortunate because he was really a remarkable guy who did a lot of cool things but he's called Doubting Thomas because in those hours after Jesus was resurrected, the report came from other disciples, Jesus has been resurrected. And Thomas, he was a skeptic. I mean, he was not naturally, naturally inclined to believe in the resurrection. He said, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes and I'm able to touch where those scars are on his body, I will not believe. He was a skeptic. He was a doubter. 
then later in his life, there is Thomas out in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus is alive. Years after that, after he takes the gospel to other parts of the world, Thomas is killed for his faith in the resurrected Christ. Soldiers drive spears through his body because he will not stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Now what made that change from being such a doubter and skeptic to being someone who will die for Jesus? The reason is because he believed that Jesus was resurrected. Now, the interesting thing here is that psychologists will tell you that, that people will die for a lie if they do not know that it's a lie. But all of these disciples, they were in a position where they could know whether or not they had really seen Jesus alive after he's crucified. They would know if this was a lie. And if they, they fabricated this whole thing, if the whole thing was an elaborate hoax, that the disciples stole the body, that they then made up this lie about him being resurrected, how do you explain that all but one of the disciples died because of their testimony of the risen Christ? The only one who didn't die for that, I mean, excluding Judas who committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus, but 10 of the 11 died. The only one who didn't was because uh, it was John who was exiled because of his faith in the resurrected Christ. But 10 of the, the remaining 11 disciples all were executed because of their testimony about Jesus being resurrected. How do you account for that if it is not true? Because psychologists say people will die for a lie, but not if they know it's a lie. Because if people know something is a lie under extreme pressure, extreme persecution, the threat of death, especially a very harm, uh, painful death, they will crack. And you take these disciples who cracked under pretty much anything else during Jesus' earthly ministry, and all of a sudden, every single one of them hold firmly and to the point of death that Jesus was resurrected and that they saw him with their own eyes. That is not explainable if Jesus was not resurrected. Now let me point out one other person who was not one of the original 12 disciples but still plays, plays significantly in the story of James. He was Jesus' brother. During Jesus' earthly ministry, James and Jesus' other siblings were not a fan of Jesus. They, they did not understand what Jesus was trying to do, what he was saying. I imagine they were kind of humiliated by him going out there and making a big scene and talking about being the Messiah and talking about being the only way to God. They, they kind of mocked Jesus. Yet James, later on, is out proclaiming on the streets of Jerusalem that Jesus has been raised from the dead. James becomes one of the primary leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. James writes a book that's now in the Bible that carries his name, the book of James. So what happened to James? How did this transformation occur? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, gives us a good picture of what happened for James. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 3, Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James. James, his brother, he appeared to James. And that was what led to the transformation from being a doubter and a mocker to proclaiming that Jesus had been resurrected. And, and James ended up dying for that belief. At the hands of the high priest, years later, James was stoned to death because he would not stop proclaiming that Jesus was resurrected. And you look at all this, and I mean, it's so remarkable that all these people who were claiming that Jesus, that they saw Jesus alive after he was crucified, they all maintained to and through the point of death by execution that they saw Jesus alive. A seminary professor named Paul Little, he said it really well when he said, are these men who help transform the moral structure of society, are they consummate liars or deluded madmen? These alternatives are harder to believe than the fact of the resurrection. And there is no shred of evidence to support them. You know, all the disciples, they had such incredible confidence that Jesus truly was resurrected from the dead. And they carried that out to the point of death. They were convinced of it. And I think this is really the strongest line of evidence for the resurrection, especially when you put it together with all these other angles of evidence as well. Let me give you one more angle of evidence that points to Jesus being resurrected. And that's that the Bible's resurrection accounts appear to be credible. They appear to be credible. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of, you know, isn't the story about Jesus just a myth? And so there we talked quite a bit about the credibility of the Bible. Hey, if you weren't here that week and you want to learn more about that, please go to our website, uh, freedomschurch.org. You can listen to that sermon. Um, but I want to point out three specific aspects of the resurrection accounts in the Bible that show that they are credible. One is the fact that Jesus appeared to a wide variety of people. He appeared to a wide variety of people. Now, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection didn't just start when the disciples heard, no, Jesus' tomb is empty. He must have resurrected. No. The disciples and the other people who, who, whose names are associated with these resurrection appearances, they actually claim to have seen Jesus alive. They saw him with their own eyes. And it's a wide variety of people. Who, there are about 10 different accounts in Scripture, 10 different times when Jesus appeared to different people in different places and did and said different things after he was crucified. And so you have this wide variety of witnesses, many of whom are listed by name, and they were still alive, living eyewitnesses in the time that this was written. And then there was this other time where he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And it says most of them were still alive as well at the time that was written. So you have a lot of living eyewitnesses who can testify to the fact that they saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified. And when you think about court cases and how you establish a credible story for something, witnesses play a huge role in establishing the credibility of a story. And when you get a lot of different independent witnesses who are all telling the same story about an event, it gives you a lot of reasons to believe that is what actually happened. So it is with Jesus' resurrection and all the people who saw him alive. Now, the first witnesses 
may give some, some of the most credibility to that in, in the fact that the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, that may not seem very significant. Probably when you read the resurrection accounts, it doesn't really stick out to you as significant. But back in the Jewish culture, back in the ancient Roman culture, women were not looked at as trustworthy witnesses. Their testimony was not allowed to come into um, a, a courtroom as a credible testimony that can be used in the court case because they weren't considered trustworthy. And so imagine if these resurrection accounts in the Bible were fabricated. If they were just lies someone was making up trying to prove that Jesus was resurrected but when he really wasn't. Odds are good they would not use women as the first witnesses. Because that testimony in that culture wouldn't carry much weight. Odds are good they would have used men because in that culture men's testimonies would have carried more weight. And so why throw a woman in there when that's not going to, again, establish the credibility back in that culture unless it really happened? And so that helps establish further credibility on top of the fact that in these stories of Jesus' death and resurrection, key Christian leaders were depicted with shameful details. Think about it. Apostle Peter, top lieutenant in Jesus' 12 disciples, top lieutenant, he, he denies three times that he even knows Jesus. That is incredibly shameful. The fact that all the disciples, except for John, fled when Jesus was crucified. They, they, they turned their back on him in this time of need. Incredibly shameful. The fact that they were so scared that now they're hiding in, in a room that's locked to try to get away from anyone who might be um, coming after them. That, that's shameful as well. The fact that, that the men didn't believe when the women said, hey, we saw Jesus, the men didn't believe it. That's shameful as well. On top of the fact that Thomas, even after the other disciples, said, hey, we saw Jesus alive. Thomas said, no, I don't believe you. I have to see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands. These are all very shameful things that would not have been included in there if they did not happen. Because what would be the motive of the early church years, decades later, writing about their own leaders and the failure of their own church leaders back in the time of Jesus and then making women the heroes? Back in that culture, that motive doesn't stack up. And so we look at the accounts of the resurrection in the Bible, and it gives us many reasons to trust that what's recorded here actually happened. It's a, it's a recording of history. Now, when establishing a case, as I said, it's important that we look at a topic from many different angles. I mean, the Case for Christ movie that we'll see in a couple of weeks, uh, it, that's kind of what is being done there. It's looking at the, the case for Jesus from many different angles. It's the same thing with Jesus' resurrection. We've looked at some of the main angles here this morning, but a couple of others I'm just going to throw out there. One is that, that Jesus predicted his resurrection. I mean, this, this idea of Jesus being resurrected didn't just come completely out of thin air. He, he believed that was going to happen to him. And for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Not Romans, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says that, um, Jesus then began to teach the disciples that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Now the disciples, they didn't really understand it. In fact, the very next verse says he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Again, something kind of shameful for Peter there. But, but, you know, Peter, like the other disciples, did not understand the idea of how the Messiah would die and then be resurrected. It wasn't part of their frame of reference. Yet Jesus predicted that he would be resurrected. On top of that, I mean, we look at the resurrection and think, how can that really happen? Does it make sense from a logical point of view? How does a person who's dead come back to life? It's supernatural. It is supernatural. I mean, if someone doesn't believe in any sort of God, any sort of divine being, it will be very hard for them to believe in the resurrection because it defies any sort of repeatable scientific experiment. But if we believe that there is a God, and there are many lines of evidence to support the belief in the existence of God, if we believe there is a God, then it's perfectly credible to believe that God can intervene in history at various times when he chooses to perform a miracle. And that's what we believe he did in the resurrection of Jesus. So two questions for us to consider this morning. One question is, are you convinced of Jesus' resurrection? I don't ask you to believe just on the, on, the, on the fact of everything I said this morning, but I want to challenge you. If you are not convinced that Jesus was resurrected, I want to challenge you to dig into it more. Dig into it for yourself, because this is one of the most important topics we can ever come to understand, is was Jesus who he said he was, or was it all just a big lie? If it's a big lie, we don't need to believe it. It doesn't matter in our lives. But if it's true that Jesus truly is God in human form, and that he died for sin, and that he was resurrected, that makes the biggest difference in the world. So are you convinced of Jesus' resurrection? Uh, there are a lot of resources out there. The book, The Case for Christ, another book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. If you're wanting to really dig deep, please talk with me because I'd love to talk about it or to point you to other more scholarly resources on the topic as well. It's, a, it's an incredibly important topic. Second question is, if you are convinced that Jesus was resurrected, are you letting the resu resurrected Christ transform you? Because Jesus wasn't resurrected just to get, give us a get-out-of-hell-free card or just to have us have a happy Easter. He was resurrected to transform us, to give us hope for after we die, but also to transform us here and now. Another person who was transformed by the resurrected Christ was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was a persecutor of Christians. He did not like the idea of a resurrected Christ, but then Jesus appeared to him. And it erased all doubts. And then the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus wants to work out a death and a resurrection in each one of our lives as well. A crucifixion where, where we die to ourselves and then, spiritually speaking, are resurrected to new life in Christ. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we experience that new life as we submit ourselves to him, surrendering to Jesus, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we all have room for growth in that. So the question is, if we believe that Jesus really has been resurrected, are we letting the resurrected Christ transform us from the inside out? Now, going back to the idea of, of, of is the resurrection truth or is it a lie? If the disciples simply invented and fabricated this hoax that Jesus was resurrected, it has to be one of the most sinister, wicked, heartless lies that's ever been invented. Because so many millions of people down through history have put their hope 
and their trust in the fact that Jesus has been resurrected. And if that is simply a lie that these 12 or so individuals came up with and then propagated down through history, that is so incredibly evil and heartless. But thankfully, there is so much truth that points us and clues that point us to being able to trust in the resurrection of Christ. And that can give us hope. It can give us confidence. It can give us joy. It can transform us from the inside out just like the disciples were transformed from the inside out when they experienced the resurrection of Christ. And I think once more of Peter in closing, I'm going to read from a letter that Peter wrote. And he writes the confidence and hope that the resurrection gives. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is all available to us because Jesus has been resurrected. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us hope. We thank you that you stepped off your heavenly throne, you came to this world, you, you taught, then you died, and then you were resurrected. And that sealed the deal. That shows the check clear. That shows the payment has been accepted for sin. So that sin and death and hopelessness no longer has to characterize us. We, we do recognize we live in a world still that faces many challenges. But we thank you, Jesus, that you give us hope, both now and for eternity. And I pray that you will work in each one of us to give us increasing confidence in Jesus' resurrection and that then we will submit to him in the work that he wants to do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.